Hello, and welcome to episode two of Strung Out Violin Makers Vlogcast. Today is Friday, November 22nd, which means that tomorrow is the American Violin Society Convention in Montreal. I'm terrified. Before I go, I figured I'd briefly introduce you to all three of the Strad copies I'm bringing into competition, as well as briefly touching on the instruments on which they're based. Before I do that, it's important to note that there's an interesting dichotomy in the violin-making world. We admire, or even deify, hyper-traditionalism, but we also expect you to bring some of your own personality to the build. Often that's in the case of minor imperfections, such as asymmetries, tool marks, pencil marks, what have you. But sometimes it's interesting treatments or features of the pegs or tailpiece. There's also two very distinct approaches to copying classic instruments. The first is the hyper-traditional copyist approach, which is where you take a violin as it exists today and try to replicate that to the best of your abilities, where 300 years of play in and all. The other is a modernist copy approach, which is where you take a violin as it exists today, try to imagine what it looked like 300 years ago before it spent all that time rattling around in cases, being hammered into by bows, etc. I've built one violin using each of those approaches, and one that's sort of intermediate to the two. I'll start with the hyper-traditional approach, since I suspect that's the one the judges are going to favor. So the Castle Barco Stradivarius of 1699 is the last of the long-form strads. That means it's somewhat longer of overall length of body, but narrower of waist and the lower bout in particular. Another interesting feature of long-form strads is that they're fairly barrel-chested. The arching of the top and back plates is somewhat more severe than it is on golden period or even uh, late period strads. Now the original Castle Barco has a very lovely, very delicately flamed one-piece maple back. And the figure of the spruce top is very fine and very even across it. There's also significant medullary rays, especially in the lower bout of the spruce, which is something I've tried to emulate in my choice of wood. Now, this being a hyper-traditionalist approach, there are certain imperfections inherent to replicating age. Uh, the biggest case here is there's a significant amount of organic asymmetry. The treble side C-bout is somewhat taller and slightly deeper than the base side C-bout, and the F-holes aren't quite symmetrical on the horizontal plane. The base F-hole sits very slightly lower than the treble F-hole. Now, in addition to those natural asymmetries that come with age, there's also certain grazing of the varnish, uh, cracks of the top wood, and usually an ebony crown at the heel of the neck that comes just with time and, and being played. Uh, in the case of all three of those features, they're present here. Uh, the ebony crown is basically to replace wood that would be lost from your hand slamming into it from playing for 300 years. Now, the original Castle Barco Strad has an actual crack in the top. This is just a scoring in the varnish to replicate a crack. Um, but overwhelmingly, this is a fairly accurate copy of the Castle Barco Strad. Um, this one comes with sandalwood pegs and a sandalwood chin rest and a European box with tailpiece. Now, that tailpiece has an 8 karat gold fret, a white sapphire gem inlaid, and some uh, Swarovski crystal elements in the fine-tuner adjuster. So this is something that I think the judges are going to be very fond of uh, because of the natural asymmetries, because of its similarities to the actual strad of which, of which it is a copy. And also the bridge is very interesting on this one. Uh, this is actually a copy of an actual strad style bridge, but I've scaled it up somewhat to better suit modern instruments and modern playability. So this is one that I've got high hopes for in terms of judgment and uh, adjudication potential. Um, it's also just a very warm, very loud, very... Uh, prone to projection, I suppose, violin. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, I built a copy with a, a modernist approach of the Viotti Strad of 1709. Now, this is an anomalous, anomalous violin to begin with. 
Uh, it comes straight in the middle of uh, Strad's golden period in 1709, which means it's somewhat stockier of waist and, and of lower bout, and a little bit flatter of arching. But it's got a very dark varnish for Strad, especially for Strad of that period. Um, there are only really two golden period strads that have sort of this crimson varnish, and that is this Viotti and the uh, Mendelssohn violin, which came a little bit after this. Um, the original Viotti has a very delicately but coarsely flamed uh, one-piece maple back. And this is more of a ribbon curl than it is a tiger stripe, so that's something I've tried to emulate in my choice of wood. And the wood at the top is actually very densely grained towards the middle, and then broadens out significantly towards the outer flanks. There's not too much action of medullary rays here, but there's a little tiny bit where it's been scraped smooth. And this one comes fitted with uh, African blackwood pegs, tailpiece, and chin rest. And there's a little garnet inlaid in the uh, fine tuner adjuster. So this is a modernist approach. There's nowhere to the corners. There's no real chipping or grazing or damage to the varnish. This should be more or less, in terms of woodwork, uh, what left Strad's workshop in 1709. You can see it's a very, very different beast to the Castle Barco. It's, um, you know, bigger, stockier, heavier, heartier, I suppose. Um, yeah, these are sort of two ends of the spectrum for me. And then halfway between the two is my copy of the Ex Moselle or Artaud Strat of 1722. Now this combines some of the features of both the modernist approach to the VOT and the traditional approach to the Castle Barco. It's got very delicate, very hyper-precise woodworking, including very sharp corners, but also features a more traditional oil varnish color and some light features aware that the Castle Barco has. This is a little more indicative of who I am as a maker and a little more typical of what I output from my workshop. Now, the reason in particular that I chose the Ex-Moselle to copy is that it has a two-piece back. Players tend to have a bias, and I assume judges do as well, towards one-piece backs. That's based on a hundred or so year old misconception that one-piece backs are more free to vibrate. That's fundamentally untrue. A properly bookmatched two-piece back such as this is going to have absolute symmetry of both grain density and grain structure on either side of the center line. Because of that, when properly carved or thickness, all the nodal points that are important to violin players, such as the fundamental frequency of the notes you play and not the wolf notes that are two or more octaves above it, will be ultimately free to vibrate. Now, in the case of one-piece backs, there can be a tremendous variance in grain structure and density from one side to the other. In the hands of a talented maker, they'll put the denser maple towards the bass side and the less dense maple towards the treble side. This helps to sort of attenuate the shrillness and shriekiness and brightness that violins can sometimes produce, especially in the hands of inexperienced players, and also help provide a nice roundness warmness to the uh, bottom end of the violin. This, of the three, has the most delicate woodworking for me, and in fact, some of the uh, best craftsmanship of the three. So I know that if either the Castle Barco or the Viotti place in the craftsmanship category, and this one does not, it's down to the biases of the judges. If you look at my purfling bee stings, that's the very sharp point at the tip, you'll see that on my ex Moselle or Artaud Strad, it's actually a lot finer than it is in a lot of Stradivari's own works. Of course, that's one feature out of the more than hundred that the judges will be listening and looking for. So it's not to say that I think I'll fare well compared to 156 makers, many of whom have been at this longer than I've been alive. It's just to say that at least there's something I can be proud of. Now the next time you hear from me, it'll be five or ten second spurts throughout the competition, and then again once I return to the car thereafter. Well, today's the big day. It is uh, about 7.35 a.m. Just doing some last minute adjustments in the car before I hop on the train and head to Toronto to fly to Montreal. Approximately 10 hours later.
just a hair after six o'clock. Um, I'm exhausted. I just got back to the car from, uh, or at the train station, about half an hour from home. But I figured I'd sort of quickly let you guys know um, the criteria for adjudication and the adjudication process tonight before I actually go into um, how it went. So there are two separate categories um, for prizes. There is craftsmanship and there's tone. The craftsmanship judges are all violin makers who are judging sort of the, the, the finer characteristics that make an instrument good. Um, they'll be judging, you know, the obvious things like the quality of varnish and the quality of wood, but also um, things that you can't really see at a glance. So, you know, the quality of the fittings, the fitment of the fittings, um, same with the bridges. Uh, they'll also be looking at, you know, things like uh, the quality of your purfling, the accuracy of your purfling, um, the fitment of the bass bar and the sound post, uh, you know, your edge work, definitely. Um, basically, that there are no tool marks remaining inside the instrument that don't belong there. And then you've got the tone judges who are players rather than makers, who are sort of judging not only the quality of tone of your instrument, but also the sort of accessibility of that tone. So there are some instruments that'll sound absolutely fantastic under very strict criteria. Like they'll sound very, very good if you're playing uh, with a lot of bow pressure or in a sort of medium-sized auditorium setting. But if you're playing, you know, with light bow pressure or pizzicato or in a very small room or very large room, they might sound terrible. So the sort of accessibility and, and sort of versatility of tone is, is a very important factor for them. Uh, the volume of the instrument is a very important factor, and also uh, issues of playability. So like action and um, string angle, string spacing, all the things that make it easy or hard to play an instrument. And then there's the adjudication of the finalists. And from the get-go, they anonymize your instruments when you get there. So they put a little black piece of basically um, black masking tape over your label. And then a little gold sticker over your bridge branding, if you brand your bridges. So the judges don't know whose instrument they're playing, which I think is a very uh, important and significant factor to sort of um, get rid of biases in terms of makers, because, you know, there's a tremendous bias towards Italian or English makers. So um, by anonymizing it, they're basically making it a lot more fair for the judges. It is Friday, November 29th, and we're back. I figured I'd go into a little more detail about the point system of adjudication before I really reveal how the competition went for me. So I had mentioned that the adjudication was split into craftsmanship and tone categories, but I didn't mention how the judges award points for each. So you've got three maker judges who are all, you know, acclaimed luthiers or master luthiers who um, are looking at 40 specific characteristics of each of the instruments that you bring. For each of those 40 individual characteristics, they're giving you a number of points from zero to five, so each judge can award you a total of 200 points, hypothetically. In the tone category, there are only 20 characteristics you're looking for, so each of those is weighted a double of the craftsmanship characteristics, so it's on a scale of zero to 10. So again, it's 200 points maximum per judge, for a total of 600 points for all three judges in either category. So I brought my Castle Barco violin, which is the one which I thought would fare most um, favorably amongst the judges, and in fact it did. In the tone category, my Castle Barco was awarded 541 points, which was just enough points for me to take home a little third place ribbon for it. Um, I mean, any sort of acknowledgement, even as a human being, um, amongst makers who've been at this so much longer than I've been alive for the most part is sort of flattering and mind-boggling to me. But there's more. <laughs> For 541 points in tone, this was also awarded 522 points in craftsman. Now, unfortunately, that puts it in fifth place, which means I don't get to take home a medal or anything. But the cumulative points across both, both categories, 541 plus 522, is 1,063 points out of a possible 1,200, 
which was enough for the Castle Barco to bring home the best in show trophy for me, which um, I cried. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> you know, as soon as they sort of read out the number on it, um, because it's anonymous adjudication, so what they'll do is they put a little serial number on your tailpiece and cover up your label or your bridge branding, so the judges don't know whose instrument they're playing. And then they'll read out the number, a nice little old lady of the book will flip through, find the number, and then she'll announce who the maker of that instrument was. So as soon as that nice little old lady read out my name, I was just sitting in the uh, seats and I started gently weeping. And every five years at the American Violin Society convention, they awarded a trophy called the Spirit of Stradivari. Uh, they began that in 1994, which was Strad's 350th birthday. And they've hosted it every five years since. So it's 355th, 360th, etc., right up until this year. What the Spirit of Stradivari Award is for is for whoever best captures the, um, I guess, dedication to the art of Luthery and the innovative drive and, um, I guess, sort of adeptness of, of handiwork that they feel best captures and represents who Antonio Stradivari was as a maker. Um, again, this is a trophy that's handed out every five years. I knew about it this year. You know, I showed up. I went, you know... I'm glad someone's going to win this because I'm very much fond of a lot of the other people in the, you know, Luthery industry, at least on a personal level. So at the end of the competition, when they decided which instruments were best representative of um, Maker who best captures the spirit of Stradivari, and they read out the three numbers, and the nice little old lady with the book flipped through and found who the Maker was, uh, and it was me. I cried some more. <laughs> so, you know, it was just a very emotional weekend for me. It was, um, you know, thrilling, exhilarating, terrifying. I'm not a big fan of travel to begin with. So, like, having to hop on an airplane with, you know, $24,000 worth of violins in a case slung over my head into a little case, into a little container, rather, was a little bit terrifying for me. And then wandering through the streets of Montreal where everyone's smoking all the time, and I'm very uncomfortable around cigarette smoke as a person, probably because my wife has a double lung transplant. Um, you know, I basically spent the past week trying to sleep to recover, uh, emotionally at least. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it, it went, you know, a thousand times better than I could have ever imagined that it would go. Um, I got some very good input from other makers. I took a couple of workshops, so the edge work of my violin should be improving soon, and so should my, uh, F-hole work. Um, I got some very nice input, actually, on all three of my instruments from makers. Um, the Castle Barco, which is what I just showed you, and which <laughs> sort of really brought home the bacon for me, was called a remarkable facsimile of the original in both craftsmanship and tonal character, which is a, a you know, tremendously flattering commentary considering it's that or an actual literal strad. Um, my ex Mazel or Artaud, <clears throat> which is this one right here, was well regarded for craftsmanship and warmth of tone, but I didn't get any actual specific quotable input on that one. And my Vioti, the reddish violin that I showed you previously, was called skilled of construction, powerful of tone, but of perhaps too modern of taste. Which, I mean, I think is a pretty fair assessment for probably about half or two-thirds of what I do as a maker anyway. But, you know, it, it went wonderful for me. I'm very flattered, I'm honored, I'm still a little skeptical. I'm still sort of sitting here going, are you, are, are you guys sure? Was that... Oh, you're, you're sure? Okay. So... You know, I'm, I'm very blessed to have been able to uh, receive this honor. I'm very happy I went to the convention this year. And I'm thinking next year I might actually be ready for some of the more major competition. Because uh, the American Violin Society and the World Luthery Society, the two, the two conventions I've attended so far, are, um, you know, a great deal smaller and sort of pale in comparison to the uh, VSA convention, which happens every two years. So next year's the next one. And 
I might have enough confidence to actually make it out there. We'll uh, sort of see how it goes as it draws nearer. But, you know, overall, I'm just I'm tremendously glad. Oh, November 30th, Vlog Day. And I just wanted to, uh, you know, sincerely thank you guys for your endless and boundless love and support over the course of my short violin-making career so far. Um, you know, I'm still sort of emotionally overwhelmed, still sort of trying to process the outcome of last weekend's convention. Mm -hmm.